If you would take your Bibles and turn to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. A reminder that Paul, as he's writing this letter to the church in Philippi, is in prison. And uh, while he is in prison, uh, he is thinking about what's going on at this church. And uh, later on in chapter 4, which at the pace we're going we'll get to sometime around February or March, uh, in, Feb- in, in, in uh, Philippians 4, he says to them, I entreat you, Odia, and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. And then he asks for some in the church to help them find that agreement. He knows that in the midst of this church, uh, there's a, a disagreement that's so significant that he would write about it to the whole church. Now, I mean, just for a second, imagine if I were to begin preaching about a disagreement among a couple of you. Uh, you would think that would be odd, unless, of course, it was something that was so public in the church that it needed to be addressed. That's what's going on in the church in Philippi. And it's because of that disagreement and perhaps others in it that you now get the context for all of the unity he's calling the church to. Over and over, it's been a theme. Live together uh, under Christ. You are one in Christ. Consider each other's interests more than your own. How much more does that ring when you understand he's addressing people who are uh, trying to carve out a position for themselves in against others in the church? How significant uh, his directions and how he calls them to gaze upon Christ who gave up his position in order to walk among us and to be humiliated, and for God to lift him up rather than to find his own position of honor. Can you see how that would apply to two people who were fighting? I hope you can see how it would not only apply to them, but also to us. Uh, To see that this is the ordinary call of the Christian life. And in particular, we're going to see that because we know the Spirit of God is at work in us, what does it look like for us to show the Spirit's work? What does it look like to, to see in a visible form in our church, in our relationships, and in our lives, the Spirit at work in us? That's what this next passage is about. We're going to focus on, chat, on verses 14 through 18, but we're going to read for context verse 12 to 18. Before we do, let, let's pray together. Our Father, we're so thankful for your word. And for the churches that have come before us who've endured all sorts of circumstances so that we could learn from them and learn from your word to them. The the words we're about to read were meant to point an ancient church to your son. And now we want them to point us to him. That we could take hold of what is ours in Christ and work it out into our lives. That it would become visible uh, to the world, what you are doing here, that would become evident to angels and to all who would see so that you would be able to point to what you're doing here. And even the demons could say that is God's work. Who can overthrow it? Oh, Father, would you work in us that which is pleasing to you to will and to do according to your good pleasure? This we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Philippians 2, verse 12. This is God's word. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, 
not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. This is God's word. It is completely true and is utterly trustworthy. This week I came across an article that described uh, the transformation that Dr. Holly Ordway experienced. She was a Ph.D. uh, professor. Uh, She had got her Ph.D. from the University of Massachusetts at Amherst and taught literature uh, in uh, a university in California. Uh, She grew up in a nominally, this is her own testimony, uh, she grew up in a nominally Christian home, which is to say uh, one that said, yeah, we're Christians, but that didn't really have any substance in their life. They didn't practice any kind of religious uh, convictions. And so when she got to her first uh, setting at college, University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, uh, she threw off even the nominal part of Christianity and, and embraced uh, what she called this, the pervasive assumption that secularism was simply true, that naturalism, evolution, all that explained everything. She professed herself to be an atheist. She became convinced uh, with her advancing degrees that you couldn't be smart and be a Christian. And so that was her life. But as she was teaching literature, she came across poetry, uh, even contemporary poetry and literature written by Christians that touched her soul, that was really well-written work that she found resonated with her experience in the world, and it caused a little cognitive dissonance. How can you be uh, you know, uh, a Christian, because Christians can't be smart, or else they're just superstitious types, and, and yet produce this kind of intelligent work. And it drove her to go, what's up with this Christianity? She began to investigate it. And she found the claims to be a great deal more credible than she had imagined. Now, she is the director of apologetics. That's the defense of Christianity uh, at uh, Houston Baptist College. It is now it's her calling to use all of her academic skill to give good arguments for Christianity. She became convinced of the resurrection, but didn't want to give her life to Christ because she knew what that would mean. But here's the problem. If Jesus is risen, then he is the Lord. And you can't live long convinced of his resurrection and and in rebellion to him. And so uh, the two things collided and eventually the Lord won. She became a Christian and a follower of Jesus. And I really like that story because it confirms something that I sort of feel, which is I want some Christians... Uh, to be in places of 
of significant influence. What I might call successful Christians. You know, smart Christians who are good authors. Uh, I, I want uh, athletes who've got a big platform to be Christians. I want, uh, you know, folks who have the big names, some Hollywood stars to be Christians. And, and, and what ends up happening is I think it will make Christianity attractive uh, to a, a broader culture if we've got some successful types. <laughs> Only problem with that is that's not what the Bible says. In, in fact, here, what the Bible says is going to make you shine like stars on a dark night is something altogether different than, quite frankly, success. It's He says... If you want to shine like stars, be a faithful and powerful witness for Christ, the way you do it is you look really utterly different and in some cases foolish to the world. You want to know how to do it? He says, don't complain. Don't complain. Not don't be success, not, not go be successful. Don't find a life where you don't need to complain, but rather live in a life where everyone else complains, but you don't. That's point one. Second point he says is if you want to be a, a witness that shines for Christ, hold fast to the word of life, to the Bible. Make your life oriented about the Bible. People who think it's a superstitious book full of errors and all kinds of problems. Make your life all about it. And then the third thing he says is, don't live for this life, live for eternity. Lay down your life today and you'll be a a person who shines like the stars. Now, a lot of that is counterintuitive, so let me uh, help us explore it. How do we bear witness the way the New Testament tells us? Do not grumble is the first point. Verse 14, do all things without grumbling or questioning. It's a straightforward command, isn't it? Don't complain. Don't grumble. Now, as I read that, part of me goes, yeah, but there's got there's got to be some qualifying to this. You know, I go read the Psalms and, and they complain. The psalmist is always talking about how things, how bad things are. But keep note, he is at least offering his complaint to God and not grumbling behind uh, the backs of other people. After all, what's really probably in Paul's mind right here is he is thinking perhaps of Euodia and Syntyche, the, the people we mentioned that have a fight in the church that are in chapter 4. And he's imagining what's going on in the church, or perhaps he even knows you know, there'd be a few people who'd be like, yeah, but I really think Yodi is right. And, and, and Syntyche, did you know what she did with her kids? And you hear that little grumbling, that little roll that's behind people's backs that's really tearing apart places in the church. And you got the other folks who are over here. You all will be Syntyche's group and you all will be, that just works out for me. You know, y'all are over here going, yeah, but Yodia, she has these problems and we like to grumble behind. And, you know, the pastor, I think he kind of favors one of them. You get the idea as, as to how destructive that would be to the church. And so Paul's saying, I want you to do everything without that kind of grumbling. But I think we can be even more specific. Paul has something very clearly in mind when he's writing this. 
because he's quoting Moses almost verbatim. So I don't like to do this ordinarily. I want to focus on the passage we have rather than jump around. But I do want you to do this. I want you to keep your finger there in Philippians 2 and flip back to Deuteronomy chapter 32. Deuteronomy 32. He just said to them, do everything you can. Do everything that you do without grumbling, without questioning, so that you'll be without blemish, blameless in the world. All right, now listen to, to uh, Deuteronomy 32. I'm going to read a few verses. Start verse 1. Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak. And let the earth hear the words of my mouth. May my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew. Like gentle rain upon the tender grass, like showers upon the herb. For I will proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God, the rock. His work is perfect for all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity. Just and upright is he. They have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. You hear that language? Jump back to Philippians 2. You can hold your spot. He says in chapter 15 that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Do you catch what he said? The Old Testament people, Moses is saying, you haven't dealt faithfully with God, therefore you're blemished. You've shown yourself not to be children. You're a crooked and twisted generation. In Philippians 2, he's saying don't complain, don't grumble. So that you'll be the children of God, unblemished, blameless, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Paul was thinking about Deuteronomy 32 when he wrote Psalm 2, or Philippians 2, rather. Now, here's why that matters. You remember the history of Israel as they came out of Egypt, constantly complaining. We don't have water. We don't have food. We don't have meat. We don't have comfortable chairs. You know, they complained about everything. And they often would say, I wish God had just left us in Egypt. See, that's the very heart of what Paul is saying, is, is that we are grumbling. God, I don't like how you're carrying out my life. You, you should have just left me alone if you're going to do this. If you're going to be at work in my life, as verse 13 says, God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure, we start to see God working in our lives. He works out our lives through our relationships and our employment or lack of employment, through good relationships and the broken ones. He works through our lives through good health and bad health. He works through our lives in all circumstances. And yet we're saying, God, couldn't you just leave me alone here? Paul is saying, I want you to think something different. I want you to think that because God is at work in your present life exactly as it is now a lot of you could start listing off things you wish were different about your life your finances maybe your living situations your health Uh, you, you probably have a whole list of things you could put in a sheet where you could say I wish this would change and I want you to hear Paul 
look at that list and say, yeah, but don't you know God's at work in that? Don't you know God is at work right there in your life? This is the Spirit of God putting in you the will to to be sanctified in that spot. He's working in you to do God's will right there. Don't you understand? This is how we often uh, work out our saying, don't complain. You know, there are people who are worse than you. We shouldn't complain about the meal you've got. There are people who are in other countries who would die to have that meal. You, you shouldn't complain uh, about uh, the you know, fact you've got to keep taking blood pressure medicine all your life. There are people who are in uh, North uh, East Africa right now who would love to have that as their health problem. That's how we normally do it. Don't complain. There are people who are worse than you. But I want you to know that that's not what Paul's doing here. He's not saying, listen, you've got these circumstances that are a problem. I'm in prison, for goodness sakes. But you could have spiritual problems on top of that. What he's saying is, don't you know that in my prison, God is at work? And so if God has brought me here, he must be doing something great. I won't complain about it. If God has brought you where you are, don't complain about it. Because you begin to see everything in your life through this lens of faith. God is at work here. He's at work in me here to sanctify me here in this moment. Uh, a, a quick pastoral aside. Uh, I don't think this means you have to say it's all easy or that it's all fun. I think we're allowed to say, God, this hurts. I think we're allowed to say, I'm frustrated. But the, the, the idea is, God, this is so painful. Will you let me see what you're doing? Would be the prayer. God, this is so frustrating. Will you show me how to be faithful here? Because I know you're at work. You see the, the change in the attitude. Now, contrast that to somebody who doesn't have the heavenly father. And they're living in their life and they get the same health news you get. They lose the same job that you might lose. They find the same pains that you feel and they have no hope that there is a sovereign father who's working it for their good. How do you live life without complaining then? If you can take hold of what you believe about your father and his work in you, you can squish that impulse to complain and instead shine as one who knows a father who loves you and is committed to you. And he says, here's another thing, you know, you'll not grumble. You also hold fast to the word of life. It's in verse 16, holding fast to the word of life. So in the day of Christ, I may be proud and not run or labor in vain. I'm not going to really belabor this point a ton, but it's very simple. This is as straightforward a command as they get to. Believe the Bible. Hold on to the Bible. Make it your thoughts and your conversations. Read it. Study it and know it. In Deuteronomy 6, 
uh, God tells his Old Testament saints, put it on your doorpost, put it on your gates, uh, wear it as frontlets on your eyes. Talk about God's word when you uh, get up in the morning and when you lay down at night and when you're walking on your way. Make it a part of your life at every moment. Hold fast to God's word. I remember uh, watching a number of pretty well-known Christians uh, would get on CNN like uh, with Piers Morgan before that show was canceled. And he would always ask them some pretty uh, directed questions trying to point out the, the, the way Christianity is old-fashioned and can't stand up to the modern mind. Would ask about uh, issues of homosexuality and, and uh, things that, that today people are saying, eh, who can believe that? And a number of those men who were on there were so brilliant because all they would say is, well, God's word says, God's word says, this isn't an authority issue for me. This is what God has spoken. And I am bound to it. I'm holding fast to God's word. And I assure you, if you hold fast to God's word, if you're confident in the Bible and it becomes the place on which you base your life, there will be people who think you are foolish, superstitious. There will be Christians who think you're crazy. There's a new book that just came out by a guy named Peter Enns. He was a professor at Westminster Seminary. And he has said at the title of the book is The Bible Tells Me So, How Defending the Bible Kept Me From Reading It. Now he says, you shouldn't really read the Bible as it being true. It's got a good message. The Bible writers were telling you important things, but don't worry about whether it was historical or really happened. Now, if you want a good criticism of that, uh, there's there are plenty out there. Michael Kruger, who's the president of RTS in Charlotte, wrote an excellent review, and I'll direct you to him. I couldn't do it better. But the that idea that the Bible is old-fashioned and you can't really trust it, really? You're going to look foolish. But God says if you hold on to it, you will shine like stars. You will be a faithful witness. You're going to look at, you're going to live in a world where people are trying to find their hope in seeking pleasure. That's what my life will be about, and I expect to find it. And when I find pleasure, it will fulfill me. And you know what happens every time they find it? They go, well, that wasn't the one. Let me look for something else, something bigger and richer. You're going to live in a world where everyone's trying to find hope in politics. If we could get the right laws passed and the right power in place, then everything will be fine. They're looking for hope and in, in direction and meaning in wealth or power, or reputation. You're going to find your hope and pleasure, your joy, your meaning in life in the Bible. And you will look odd, but you will shine like stars. Listen, uh, one of the commentaries that I read quoted a guy named Malcolm Muggridge, a British journalist who became a Christian as an adult. He wrote in a book called The End of Christendom this, let us then as Christians rejoice that we see around us on every hand the decay of the institutions and instruments of power. See uh, in, intimations of empires falling to pieces. Money in total disarray. 
dictators and parliamentarians alike, nonplussed by the confusion and conflicts which encompass them. For it is precisely when every earthly hope has been explored and found wanting, when every possibility of help from earthly sources has been sought and is not forthcoming, when every recourse the world offers, moral as well as material, has been explored and to no effect, when in the shivering cold the last twig has been thrown on the fire and in the gathering darkness every glimmer of light has finally flickered out, then Christ's hand reaches out sure and firm. Then Christ's words bring inexpressible comfort. Then his light shines brightest, abolishing the darkness forever. If you hold fast to God's word, when everything else is exhausted, you will be standing in the midst of the darkness, shining brightly. The last thing, you do not grumble. We hold fast to God's word. We live in light of eternity. Here, uh, Paul says, I want you to hold fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I didn't run in vain. Verse 17, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. I want you to hear what he's saying. The, the pouring out of a... Of a a drink offering was in the temple when they were offering a sacrifice. They would pour wine on the offering and that would be a part of their offering. And Paul is saying, if I am that wine poured out on your faith, if my life is completely poured out so that you might believe in Jesus, then I rejoice. That makes me happy. If my entire life is spent so that you will trust in Christ, then that's what my life was for. If it cost me everything that you might believe, that's what I was supposed to do. That's what I want to do. He's saying, I'm looking forward not to this life, which I can exhaust and not worry about. I'm looking forward to the day of Christ in which if you believe in Jesus, my complete and utter investment in that project will be seen as perfectly sensible. You know, I remember the first time I ever got a sense of what the stock market really was. It was, uh, I don't know, about a year after uh, a drink, uh, Sparkle, or I can't remember what the name of it was called. But it was a, a, a little fruit juice type drink that they just started selling in bottles. Now they're everywhere. And all kinds of different brands. But this was the first one that thought they could get away with this. And they opened on the stock market at just a, a dollar or two for a share. And a year and a half later, it was $70 a share. And you realize, man, wouldn't it have been smart just to throw in $100 or $1,000? Or if you had money, $100,000, you'd be really wealthy. And I thought, man, the stock market can do that. Well, it can. <laughs> Don't get your stock market advice from your pastor. I promise that's a bad idea. But the idea is this. If I had invested in that when it first started, a year and a half later, look how, how wise and intelligent and vindicated my decision would be. In eternity, what you have invested in people believing, you'll be like, what a brilliant investment. You won't be disappointed. You will be thrilled. 
Paul says, if my jail time, if the beatings I've experienced, if the persecutions that have fallen on me serves for you to believe in Jesus, what a great investment I have done. Here's a guy who says, I'm not looking for this life. I'm looking for eternity. And I promise you, people who hear you talk like that and think like that and see you act with your money and your time like that will think, what a fool. But there will be a day when you shine like the stars because you will have shown your investment to be perfectly sensible. In fact, the only reasonable investment there is because eventually all money will fail. All time will fail. All your resources will fail except Jesus. So there's one more passage I want you to see today. And I'm really going to close with it. It's in Daniel chapter 12. And I think that Paul had this passage in mind as he was writing too. It's assuming I can find it. Go to the table of contents. Daniel 12. Listen to this. Daniel 12. At the time, at that time, shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since. There was a nation uh, till that time or since there was a nation till that time. But at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found, uh, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth. What does that mean? That's people who are buried. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake some to everlasting life and some to the shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above and those who turn and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Do you hear what Daniel is saying? There's going to be a day when those who have turned people from sin to righteousness by their ministry, by their prayers, by their holding fast to the word of life, by their refusal to complain, but to trust God in their circumstances, that those who lived in light of eternity will have turned people to righteousness. And on that day, they will shine like stars. What Paul is saying is this is how you turn people to righteousness. Not the life of success that says, look how attractive I am. But the life that says, look at God who's at work in me. Look at God who's at work in his word. Look at God who's preparing us for the eternal life that will turn us from sin to righteousness and you will shine like stars let's pray father in heaven would you take your word and hide it in our hearts that we might obey you follow you that we could live this counterintuitive life that only makes sense if you are at work but because you're at work it's the only one that makes sense Would you help us believe and to trust in you and to live in your ways for righteousness sake and for Jesus sake we pray. Amen.